so I just got some questions regarding uh, this picture right here. This was produced by some sort of performance artist in the United Kingdom who obviously went to their equivalent of Costco and got a big container of paracetamol, what they call a acetaminophen, and plastered this plastic uh, Halloween skull. Uh, the, the title of this is called Numb Skull. I'm not really enthused about that title, but you can see where it uh, comes from. This was in response to, I don't know if you remember, maybe about five, six years ago at Sotheby's Auction House, there was this small skull encrusted with $2 million in diamonds. So this one is just encrusted with uh, paracetamol tablets. <clears throat> so the uh, lecture that I was planning on giving it for, and apparently I need to find a replacement for it, uh, is this one called Critical Update in Toxicology. This is a lecture that I gave in uh, Las Vegas on September the 29th at National ASEP. And so I have a couple of lectures that I gave there that I am going to be uh, giving this month, especially if I need to uh, pinch hit. So it's interesting, if you're talking at ASEP, I didn't realize this until I was invited to speak. They don't invite you and say, talk about what you want to talk about. They know what they want people to talk about. And then they just try to find people to fit into those places. So I was given this uh, topic, and I was given this title, Critical Update in Toxicology. But I think that an alternate title that would just as easily work is Reviewing Recent Advances in Antidotal Therapies. Or alternately, what I think emergency physicians ought to know about the new antidotes. Well, what does new mean in this context? And what it means is that it was introduced in the last decade. Now, I already mentioned that I gave this lecture on September the 29th. Actually, this slide is no longer relevant because one of them was introduced now like a decade and several weeks ago. <clears throat> and so the topics that I'm going to be discussing, again, this is what was given to me by ASAP, but I really like the, uh, these topics. This was my favorite lecture out of the three that I gave. I want to talk about pearls and risks of giving intravenous and acetylcysteine, relatively uh, new in the United States. Pearls and pitfalls of administering hydroxocobalamin for smoke inhalation victims. Possible complications with, here's a mouthful here, crotalidae polyvalent immune fab. Essentially, that's crofab. And the newest big advanced antidotal therapy, which is IV lipid emulsion for poisonings. And I know BC wanted to hear some more about this. Now, you do have to give disclosures when you're giving these uh, lectures for CME in front of people. And I guess this is a CME course here, too. So I do have to disclose that I am a site investigator for a multi-center clinical trial sponsored by Cumberland Pharmaceuticals. This is the manufacturer of acetidote, that is the IV formulation of N-acetylcysteine, which is FDA approved uh, in the United States. And in fact, uh, this study is just about to start. So essentially what that means is if you see somebody in our emergency department with acetaminophen toxicity, before you start treating them, please give me a call so that I can see if they are eligible for this study. They'll get free drugs. <clears throat> Additional disclosures, my discussion is also going to include specifically naming two other commercially available antidotes. Those are cyanokit, which is the approved form of hydroxocobalamin injection, and crofab. And I'm also going to be mentioning some non-FDA approved therapies. Specifically, intravenous fat emulsion for poisonings is not FDA approved. And I'm also going to be mentioning off-label use of some approved antidotes above, especially crofat. So the first topic to get to is pearls and risks of intravenous N-acetylcysteine. So I love chemical structures. That's N-acetylcysteine right up there. No bonus points if you can recreate it from memory, however. I found it interesting in researching for preparing this lecture that there is well over 100 drug trade names for N-acetylcysteine-containing products worldwide. And most of these are intended as mucolytic agents. And some of the names are just awesome. Fluidouche, mucolator, sputopure, tauxicum, mucolyticum. But of those that are trade names for intravenous N-acetylcysteine, which is going to be the focus of this part of the lecture, there is acetidote, which is available in the United States. There's another one called Fluimucil, which is available in several European countries, including France and Germany right here. There's Parvalex. This has been around for a couple of uh, decades at least now, which is used in other English-speaking, non-American countries around the world, including the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, South Africa, etc. And I found another one found in some parts of Europe, including Russia, which is called ACC or ACC injectable. It actually doesn't carry a label saying that it's indicated 
for acetaminophen toxicity, but I can't imagine why it couldn't be used for that because it's the same thing, just made by a different manufacturer. Wanted to continue with just a brief history of the use of N-acetylcysteine for acetaminophen toxicity. It was 1974 when N-acetylcysteine was first suggested as an antidote for acetaminophen toxicity. And it actually became the drug of choice for this indication by the late 70s and early 80s. And it was used both PO and it was used IV. There was all sorts of different treatment regimens which were available at that time. And then in 1985, enough data was submitted to the FDA that the US FDA approved this traditional 18-dose, 72-hour oral and acetylcysteine regimen. So it became FDA approved, and all of the other regimens, which were not submitted for approval, were not FDA approved. So almost by default, this every four hours, 18 doses for 72 hours total, kind of just became the treatment of choice simply because it was FDA approved and the other ones weren't. However, IBN acetylcysteine was still used off-label in the US, albeit not as much as it was used elsewhere around the world. In the United States, it was used mostly by toxicologists who were familiar with it already. And although there was no actual commercial product that was labeled for IV, what was generally done is we would take mucamist, which is labeled actually for inhalation, not even for, uh, for PO, or we would get generic and acetylcysteine and run it through a micropore filter, just like a, a blood filter, so that if there happened to be any bacteria or other pyrogens in it, that you wouldn't actually be giving it to the patient. And we were pretty comfortable with that. And then things kind of changed a bit in 2004 when the FDA approved brand name acetidote IVN acetylcysteine. And the dosing schedule for this was the same schedule which had been used worldwide for several decades. And what is that protocol? There's a loading dose, similar to the fact that there's a loading dose with the oral and acetylcysteine. With IV, the loading dose is 150 milligrams per kilogram given over 15 minutes. That's how it was initially marketed and initially indicated, although currently that's been changed to over 60 minutes, and I'm actually going to explain that in several slides. Then there's a second infusion that starts immediately after the loading dose is finished, which is 50 milligrams per kilogram total, given over a four-hour period. So it's not 50 an hour per four hours. It's 50 divided over four hours. And as soon as that is done, then a third infusion, which is 100 milligrams per kilogram, given over a total of 16 hours. So you add all those three infusions up, and you get a total dose of 300 milligrams per kilogram, which is given IV over 20 to 21 hours, depending upon how fast you give the loading dose. So an interesting thing happened with NAC use in the United States by year. So here we got 1985 when the FDA approves oral and acetylcysteine for acetaminophen toxicity. And here's 2004 when the FDA approves IV and acetylcysteine. And you see the number of uses of PO is going up and up and up. And then all of a sudden, bam, things just completely switch right around 2004 where the oral and acetylcysteine is plummeting and the IV started to peak just a little bit before 2004. And by 2007, it actually exceeded and continues to exceed oral use. Well, why is it that this happened? I think number one is that there was an amazingly effective marketing campaign for acetidote. There was ads in every major emergency medicine journal, virtually all of these throwaway trade journals that I would get, EM Monthly, ASEP News, stuff like that. There was this full color ad on the back page with stuff like treat APAP overdose ASAP. And so it really got in the minds of a lot of people. There is the argument that it has easier administration. So you're giving an IV, you know, the patient might feel a little bad, might puke, but so what? You don't have to cajole the patient into taking it. You don't have to wake them up every four hours throughout the night. Uh, it might smell bad, but you're not making somebody drink something that smells bad. You're giving it through an IV, and so there shouldn't be all that much smell. However, the thing which is a little bit concerning to me is that there's no convincing evidence that IV and acetylcysteine is safer or more effective than PO. There's this huge switch in how it's being given in the United States. 
And you would hope that that's because it's a better product. But there really is no good evidence that it is a better product. In terms of safety, the adverse event rate is clearly higher for IV and acetylcysteine <laughs> compared to PO. And in terms of efficacy, IV versus PO is essentially equivalent. There is some evidence that oral and acetylcysteine may be better with patients who present late after their overdose, which is to say at least 18 hours. While IV and acetylcysteine, there's a trend towards it being better with early presenters, which is to say less than 12 hours after their overdose. But these are trends which are not statistically significant. I'm going to talk about those adverse events right now. Thank you, Dr. Cooper. <clears throat> the adverse events mostly consist of anaphylactoid reactions, which are actually pretty common. Fortunately, they are rarely serious, and I'm going to be talking about who is at risk and how do we manage these. And then there's an amazing number of dosing and drug administration errors that occur, and I'm going to be mentioning those as well. So anaphylactoid reactions are non-immunologic allergy-like reactions. The stuff that you see most commonly are cutaneous effects and GI effects. What do I mean by that? The patient gets flushed, they get itching, they get a rash, which looks urticarial most of the time, and they get nausea and vomiting. And yeah, that might make somebody uncomfortable, but that's not life-threatening. Serious adverse events can occur. Anything that can occur in an anaphylactic reaction can occur with an anaphylactoid uh, reaction. And so there are cases of angioedema, bronchospasm, and hypotension, but these are fortunately a lot more rare than the cutaneous and GI effects. So this is non-IgE-mediated mast cell degranulation. And since it's not IgE-mediated, it's not related to prior exposure to N-acetylcysteine. You do not need to become sensitized to it. It can occur to somebody with their very first exposure. And in fact, anaphylactoid reactions are much more closely related to the drug level, the level of NAC in the person's body. Now, I already mentioned that this is mast cell degranulation that is occurring. There's actually some debate about that uh, because in some studies they found that tryptase levels, which are a marker of mast cell degranulation, are not elevated. So we know that it happens, but we're not exactly sure why. But it looks just like an allergic reaction. If an anaphylactoid reaction is to occur, it typically occurs within the first hour of therapy. Well, that makes sense. That is coincident with the peak serum and acetylcysteine concentrations. And I mentioned before that the IV loading dose, that 150 milligrams per kilogram, was recommended initially to be given over 15 minutes. And then they said, wait, maybe we can decrease the rate of these anaphylactoid reactions if we give it over 60 minutes. But if you actually look at the data, there's a slight trend towards less anaphylactoid reactions and less total drug adverse events if you give it over 60 minutes. But it's just a trend. It's not statistically significant. But even so, the package insert for acetidote has been changed to reflect give it over an hour instead of 15 minutes. Now, if you're looking for anaphylactoid reactions, you're going to see a lot of them. Fortunately, they are rarely life-threatening. What do you do if you see it, if the patient starts itching or uh, flushing or gets some nausea and vomiting? Well, a lot of patients will be able to suffer through it. If all they have is nausea and vomiting, you can give them an anti-emetic. But if the, it's actually concerning to them and to you, you can temporarily halt the infusion, treat what you see, treat this anaphylactoid reaction as needed. Most of the time, that's just going to be antihistamines and antiemetics. In the more serious cases, it's going to be IV fluids and nebulized beta agonists. And most patients, nearly all patients, are able to tolerate restarting the IV and acetylcysteine infusion once you've treated them symptomatically. There are some authors that say maybe you need to do it at a reduced rate, but I've actually not found anything in the literature looking at that, if you really need to use a reduced rate or not, because most patients are able to retolerate restarting it at the recommended rate. How common are adverse reactions to IVNAC? Well, here is some data from a study that was done in Malaysia. They had 125 consecutive patients getting IV and acetylcysteine, and they found that about one-third of patients had no observed adverse effects, which means that two-thirds had at least one adverse effect. So if you're looking for it, you're going to find anaphylactoid reactions actually pretty commonly. But even though they had two-thirds of patients with these effects, actually, in this particular study, 100% of the patients were able to tolerate continuing and finishing their infusion. Asthma is a risk factor. It's a risk factor for NAC 
related adverse drug effects of all severities. And in fact, there has been a case report of a fatal anaphylactoid reaction to N-acetylcysteine in a patient who was a steroid-dependent asthmatic who took an acetaminophen overdose and they gave her IV N-acetylcysteine. Increased levels of acetaminophen are actually protective against these adverse reactions. Anaphylactoid reactions are more common among patients who have lower serum acetaminophen levels. And so therefore, the patients who most need N-acetylcysteine are actually relatively protected. And this seems to be related to anti-inflammatory effects that you get at high, at toxic acetaminophen levels. Pardon me? Is that a real drink? Is that a real drink? That is not a real drink. That has been photoshopped. But I did not Photoshop. <clears throat> There's a number of ways that you can make errors when giving IV and acetylcysteine. It's not a very commonly used drug. And so if you make a dose calculation error, it's easy to miss because you're not familiar with what the expected doses are going to be. Just as a general idea, if you are giving somebody, say, 8 grams or 10 grams or 12 grams for their loading dose, you got it right. There are some special pediatric concerns. Patients who are less than 40 kilos actually need to have the N-acetylcysteine diluted into a smaller volume of, say, D5 or whatever you're using. And there have been several case reports where these little kids actually got it diluted into an adult volume, and they ended up with hyponatremia and seizures related to that. But all you need to do is look on the package insert, and it tells you how to do this related to uh, the patient's weight. So hopefully, either you or your pharmacist will pick that up. IV NAC can be given in overdose. There have been a few deaths reported, and most of these deaths are related to anaphylactoid reactions because you gave so freaking much IV N-acetylcysteine. There's one case of status epilepticus then leading to death in a toddler. The loading dose, there was a four-fold error. You know, a four-fold error is kind of hard to do. Ten-fold errors or hundred-fold are a lot easier because you just move the decimal point. And then after that, there was a 32.5-fold error. I've got no idea how they managed uh, to do that in the second and third uh, bag. There's also been a case reported of 10-fold underdosing. And it was mentioned in that particular case report that IVNAC was ordered and commenced by staff who rarely initiate this therapy, so they were unable to make this secondary mental check. Oh, yeah, that's about the right amount. Ideally. When you're giving these three infusions, there should be no interruption in therapy between each of the three infusions. Practically, however, the loading dose and second dose are usually started in the ED. And in the meantime, the patients get transferred to the ICU or medical floor where therapy needs to be continued. And each dose is often made up separately in the pharmacy and sent up separately from the pharmacy. The complicated regimen, I really don't think it's that complicated. Length of therapy and need for multiple health professionals to administer doses of an infrequently used drug at multiple treatment sites potentiates the possibility of medication errors. That's kind of a summative comment from this study by Hayes and Annals of Pharmacotherapy just a couple of years ago. Well, how common were these errors that they were talking about in this study? Turns out that 33% of patients in a series of just over 200 acetaminophen overdoses there was some sort of drug administration error that occurred. There's 84 errors in 74 patients. Okay, great, so 10 of them uh, had it twice. But what were the most common errors? Interruption in therapy greater than one hour was by far uh, the most common one. And then there was unnecessary administration in 29, meaning that, oh, the patient took an overdose of Tylenol, they started IV and acetylcysteine, and then they plotted the point on the Rumac Matthew nomogram and realized, uh, really, this patient didn't need it, so we're going to stop. Turned out that these errors occurred more frequently in the emergency department compared to the ICU and the floor, and more commonly during night shift versus the other shift. Well, that kind of makes sense because everybody's distracted or not thinking straight at those times. But what is the clinical impact on patients? Uh, yeah, maybe they got the drug unnecessarily, but did anybody get hurt? or there were interruptions in therapy, but did anybody develop uh, liver toxicity? In fact, there's no good evidence that anybody had any kind of harm. So in this particular article by Hayes, and in other articles, a delay of greater than an hour between these infusions, there's three bags, is considered an error, but it's not clear if this increases risk of hepatotoxicity or any other kind of adverse outcome. And if you're giving oral 
and acetylcysteine therapy, there's a four-hour break every single time. So why is it that this one-hour break is going to cause a problem? It probably doesn't cause uh, a problem. And there's no established protocol that I know of to deal with this. If there is a break, just restart the next dose as soon as you can. But what I personally suggest doing is if you're going to order IV and acetylcysteine, order all three bags at the same time. The second bag is given one hour after the first one, and the third bag is given five hours after the first one. If you prepare this stuff, it is stable for at least 24 hours, and probably a lot longer than that. So you get all three bags at once. There's only one opportunity for a mathematical error to occur. And then they just follow the patient wherever the patient goes. Now, here's a graph from a study that was done in the United Kingdom where they've used IV Parvalex for decades now for paracetamol uh, overdose. And they looked at 66 patients. And what was the actual dose that they were supposed to get compared to what they actually got. And they found that 37% of the time, the patient got within 10% of the anticipated dose. So you would think, this is pretty simple math. You multiply their kilograms by, say, 150. So you should get 100% of the expected dose. Well, at least it was the mode uh, on this graph. But you can see that it has a very broad variation. In fact, 17 of these doses in the 66 patients were more than 50% off. And for three patients, all three of the bags were greater than 50% off. Oh, wow, I hope that doesn't pick up. For those of you watching online, my mic just fell. But there was no evidence uh, of harm, even with all of these drug dosing errors. So you would think in a place where they have so much more experience with using IV Parvalex, that they would do a lot better. Well, they don't do all that great. And we're newer at it, so we're probably not going to even do uh, as good as that. I did want to also mention, though, before getting off the topic of N-acetylcysteine, that you don't have to give it IV. In fact, I'm not necessarily recommending that you do. There is what's called short course oral NAC, or SCON therapy, sometimes called patient-tailored therapy. And in fact, this is the standard recommendation of the California Poison Control System and elsewhere in the United States and around the world if you are going to be giving it PO. So one of the ideas about giving it IV is if the patient does well, they only need, say, 24 hours of therapy versus 72. Well, short course oral NAC allows you, provided you meet other criteria to not have the patient in the hospital for three whole days. So you start the standard oral and acetylcysteine regimen, 140 milligrams per kilogram load, and then 70 milligrams per kilogram every four hours after that. And you can discontinue oral therapy if you gave it for at least 20 hours and all of the following criteria are met. The patient is clinically well. They're tolerating PO. They're not having right upper quadrant pain. They're exhibiting no clinical hepatotoxicity. You check their LFTs and their PT, and they are normal. They might have bumped a tiny little bit, but now they're coming back down, and the patient's clinically fine. And there is no more detectable acetaminophen. And if that's the case, you can stop your oral and acetylcysteine and save the patient potentially up to two more days in the hospital before they get medically cleared and probably sent to site. All right, here's a little bumper slide to give me a, a rest and to introduce the next topic, which is IV hydroxocobalamin. So I'm going to be talking about pearls and pitfalls of the use of hydroxocobalamin for smoke inhalation victims. And I had to have that word hydroxocobalamin turned to red because the drug is red. So here's another chemical structure that fortunately you don't need to memorize. But this is a pretty complex molecule right here. Hydroxocobalamin is based upon a corin ring. And for those of you who care and remember, it looks a lot like the porphyrin ring that we see in hemoglobin and in some other important enzymes in our body. But it's complex with cobalt instead of iron. They're right next to each other on the periodic table. So I need to talk about some cyanide pathophysiology to talk about using hydroxocobalamin for cyanide toxicity. Specifically, I'm going to be mentioning the mechanism by which hydroxocobalamin works and compare and contrast it to the traditional cyanide antidote kit. And I'm also going to be mentioning dosing of hydroxycobalamin, the known side effects, and the fact that it interferes with a number of laboratory tests. So the traditional cyanide antidote kit contains nitrites. It contains an amyl nitrite pearl, and it also contains 
sodium nitrite that you would give IV. And these are given to induce relatively low-grade hemoglobinemia. In methemoglobin, the iron gets oxidized to the ferric form, plus 3, and cyanide binds very avidly to Fe plus 3. Now, if you're making somebody methemoglobinemic, though, you are impairing to some extent their oxygen delivery, and nitrites also can cause hypotension. And seriously, cyanide poison patients are hypotensive to begin with. Then, the last part of the traditional cyanide antidote kit is sodium thiosulfate, and this helps to promote your endogenous cyanide detoxification mechanism so that you convert the cyanide, which is very toxic, into thiocyanate, which is much less toxic, and then you pee it out. Hydroxocobalamin, on the other hand, is vitamin B12A. It's a provitamin. And when it binds to the cyanide ion, it forms vitamin B12, cyanocobalamin. And it has a favorable side effects profile. It doesn't cause hypotension. It doesn't impair O2 delivery. On the other hand, though, you're going to need massive doses of a few grams. And this is the traditional dosing for hydroxocobalamin for somebody who has pernicious anemia. You would give one milligram in one mil. And you need to give doses of, say, 4,000 or 5,000 milligrams. You can't give somebody four or five liters of fluid and expect them to tolerate it very well. So again, here's the mechanism. This is vitamin B12A, hydroxocobalamin. And then we just pull the switcheroo where it binds to cyanide instead, and you get vitamin B12. How do we dose hydroxocobalamin? The starting dose is five grams IV infused over 15 minutes. So each vial of this is 2.5 grams, so you have to give two of them. I really wish I had a, a better picture of this. These are big vials. They're like 250 mil vials. But that's a lot less than giving somebody four or five liters uh, at a time. So you just dilute it with some normal saline. Depending upon how severely cyanide poison they are and what their response to the initial dose of five grams is, you might give a second dose of five grams. And depending upon how sick they are, you might give it faster or you might give it slower. But in general, you're going to give it over minutes to a couple of hours. You do need to know, however, that hydroxocobalamin is incompatible with blood products and the IV components of the traditional cyanide antidote kit. So you don't give them through the same IV line. You might give them to the same patient, but through separate IV lines. Dr. Alan Hall is one of the world's experts in cyanide toxicology. And he came up with uh, this article where he was identifying what the ideal cyanide antidote would be like. It should have a rapid onset of action because cyanide can kill you very fast. It should be easy to administer because you can't really think too much about it because you've got to give it really fast. It shouldn't interfere with oxygen transport or utilization. And therefore, it would be safer for use in cases of smoke inhalation. Smoke inhalation is one of the most common causes of cyanide toxicity. But it's combined cyanide and carboxyhemoglobin toxicity. And so you don't want to worsen oxygen delivery, which is already pretty bad due to the CO. It should have a tolerability and safety profile conducive to pre-hospital use, because the sooner you give it to the patient, the better. And it shouldn't be harmful if you give it to non-poison patients, because you're probably going to want to have it in the pre-hospital setting so you can give it right away. And you're going to expect that somebody might get it who actually maybe doesn't need it because we can't do cyanide testing uh, in the field. And it turns out that hydroxocobalamin really fits these criteria pretty well, especially when you compare it to the other cyanide antidotes that might be available. I do have a little quibble, though. I think it's got a really poor choice of a trade name. So this is called Cyanokit. It's currently uh, being marketed by Meridian Medical Technologies and was FDA approved in 2006. But Cyanokit sounds just like cyanide antidote kit. In fact, that's obviously where they got the name from. But the trade name sounds exactly like the product that it is meant to supplant. And I can easily imagine somebody saying, get me cyano kit. Somebody hears, get me cyanide antidote kit. And they're actually getting uh, the wrong one or even ordering the wrong one. And is it really a kit if there's only one drug in it? I guess you could call it a kit because you've got multiple components. Here's the drug, and then here's some IV adapters and some IV tubing. This is obviously packaged for the pre-hospital setting. <clears throat> One of its side effects is hypertension. Actually, that might be 
a very useful desired effect in a hypotensive cyanide poison patient compared to giving somebody nitrites, which are very likely to make them more hypotensive. Well, how much hypertension does it cause? In a healthy volunteer study, when they gave this to people, their systolic blood pressure increased between 22 to 27 millimeters of mercury, and the diastolic increased 14 to 25 millimeters. And the way this probably works is that hydroxocobalamin, in addition to binding to cyanide, will also bind to nitric oxide, and it will scavenge that up Nitric oxide is an endogenous vasodilator. If you get rid of the vasodilatory effect, you get vasoconstriction. Also, it makes you red. The most common side effect of hydroxycobalamin is asymptomatic and self-limited reddening of the skin. And this is simply because the medication itself is bright red. So here is one of these healthy volunteers in uh, this uh, German study. It was a crossover design. On day one, she actually got the drug and turned bright red. And then on day eight, she got placebo. And you could see that she didn't turn bright red, but she did decide to wear earrings that day. It makes your urine red. Here's a patient whose skin is all uh, flushed from the uh, hydroxocobalamin. And then the urine turned red, too. It turns your serum red. It turns your plasma red. And it might cause interference with the blood bank. It's possible that somebody in the blood bank, if you needed blood products, that they'd say, oh my god, there's some sort of hemolytic reaction going on. It's not. There was a case report of a patient who was being dialyzed for severe acidosis associated with cyanide toxicity. And the machine kept turning off. It says, there's a blood leak. There's a blood leak. I'm not going to go. And they had no sort of override button, so they couldn't do dialysis. The red color can also cause interference with several other colorimetric tests. Probably the one that's most important is carboxyhemoglobin, which is a colorimetric test. And it turns out that hydroxycobalamin has a wavelength absorbance close enough that it artifactually elevates their carboxyhemoglobin level. It will also potentially alter the measured met hemoglobin level and a number of other labs as well that rely on colorimetric tests that don't seem quite as clinically relevant. Also, the proof that this is actually effective in treating human patients with cyanide poisoning from smoke inhalation is lacking. And in fact, this product was FDA approved under what's called the animal efficacy rule. Adequate trials cannot be conducted ethically or feasibly in humans. We cannot do a randomized crossover prospective trial of patients with significant cyanide toxicity. Nobody's going to sign up for that study. No IRB is going to uh, approve it. You do have to establish that the product is safe in humans and that it is effective in animals. And then we just assume that it would be effective in humans, too. Now, it has long been used in Europe, for instance, by the Paris Fire Brigade for smoke inhalation victims. They've got a little bit different EMS system uh, than we have here in North America. When they call the equivalent of 911, a doctor and the paramedics show up, and a lot of Interventions are done in the field that we can't do here in North America because they only have paramedics and they don't have physicians. And so they were giving this stuff to virtually anybody pulled unresponsive from a fire, the presumption being that they have combined CO and CN toxicity, and there's no way we're going to know how much of it uh, is cyanide. And so they have reported from Paris 72% survival of patients pulled unconscious from fires who got hydroxycobalamin. That's great. Where's the control group? There is no control group. They just said, this is what we're going to do, and Mikey liked it. Or I guess, I guess it might be Michel in, uh, in Paris. And so here is a nice summative argument from an article called Searching for Guidance in the Haze. There is as yet insufficient evidence to demonstrate the safety or clinical efficacy of hydroxycobalamin when administered in post-inhalational exposure setting. Is it simply a costly placebo? Until rigorous controlled clinical data is published, I believe emergency physicians and their patients are best served by limiting administration of hydroxycobalamin to the most severely affected patients in whom the potential risks are more likely to be outweighed by potential for benefit. Okay, I kind of agree with that. So here's another bumper slide to give me a uh, second to catch my breath. I can't even remember exactly where I was. This was some... Uh, roadside rest area uh, somewhere in California. So I'm going to be talking about possible complications with Crofab. 
Crotalide polyvalent immune fab. And the very first problem I have with Crofab is that the name is wrong. About 25 years ago, pit viper taxonomy changed. Previously, there was two families of poisonous snakes. Well, at least two. There was the Vipiridae and the Crotalidae. And the Crotalidae had three different genuses, rattlesnakes, cottonmouths, and copperheads. But then that got switched so that there was a Crotalinae subfamily of the family Vipiridae. And this has really not been reflected very well in the medical literature, but it's certainly reflected in the biology and taxonomy literature. So anything that was crotalid or crotalidae is now crotaline or crotaline. The D changed to an N, and yet the drug's name still says crotalidae polyvalent immune fab. And when this was pointed out to the company that make uh, that make excuse me made this Protherix and Fugera, they just said, uh, "No, we don't want to change any of the paperwork." Because when you do, you have to resubmit it to the FDA. It's a real pain in the butt. So this is a fab fragment antivenom made using a sheep host and venom from four different snake species. The western diamondback, the eastern diamondback, Mojave rattlesnake, and also the cottonmouth, also known as the water moccasin. And so this gives us a nice broad sample of the kinds of pit vipers found in North America. So how would we go about making some crow fab? We get some sheep and we inject them with snake venom. And then we inject them again later on with snake venom. Not enough to really harm them, but enough that they are exposed immunologically, and they become hyperimmune. They make a whole bunch of IgG against that venom. You harvest their blood. You don't have to kill the sheep. You just harvest a little bit of their blood, fatten them up again, harvest some more blood. And then you purify it, and then you separate out the IgG, and then you treat it with papain, an enzyme from papayas, to form fag fab fragments. So that way you get this immune effect against the venom, but if you take off the FC fragment right here of the IgG, it becomes a whole lot less immunogenic, so it's a lot safer to give to a person. It was FDA approved on October 2nd, 2000. See, I'm, I'm just a, uh, like a month outside of my uh, decade-long definition of what new is. But it was actually launched in 2001, so I guess I'm safe. And it became the de facto drug of choice for American pit viper envenomation because there was no competing product available. Essentially, the company that previously made rattlesnake antivenom, Wyeth, a whole IgG product from a horse, they had wanted to get out of the business for forever because it's not uh, really safe from a medical legal perspective to have this product, a biologic product that is known to induce a lot of adverse reactions. So you're sub subjecting your company to a lot of risk. They wanted to get out of the game, but they couldn't because then nobody would be making the product. This other company comes along, makes a product which probably ought to be safer, and they said, all right, we can stop making it. So they stopped making this other product right around the same time Crofab came out. So the number of reported uses the last year we have data from is almost 1,800 times in 2008. And it started at just over 300 in the year 2001, and it's just been increasing every year. Is this actually more snake bites? Is it more acceptance of the drug, or is it just better reporting? It's probably most of the, the latter two. The number of snake bites can't be increasing that much, but it might be increasing. So I do have to... Uh, make a small apology on this slide because something has actually changed since I gave this, this lecture, and I'll get to that in a moment. So it used to be indicated for the management of patients with minimal or moderate North American crotalid envenomation. Well, this brings up the whole issue of how do we grade rattlesnake envenomation, and what the heck about severe envenomations? Why weren't they included? So here's an article by uh, Rick Dart, who is from Rocky Mountain Poison and Drug Center in Denver. That's one of the biggest groups doing work uh, on rattlesnake envenomation. And so they wanted to look at grading snake bite envenomation. Minimal, you get a little bit of local swelling, but nothing systemic, and your labs are normal. All right, that sounds fair. That sounds minimal. Moderate, you get swelling progressing beyond the site of the bite and you get one or more systemic manifestations, you'll get abnormal labs, particularly low platelets. 
And then there's severe, marked local response, severe systemic manifestations, and significant alteration laboratory findings. Well, if it's minimal, why would you treat that at all? That really doesn't sound all that bad. And then if you look at severe, it's actually not that difficult to meet those criteria. All you need is a platelet count, say, of 20, and all of a sudden you're severe. And they wanted to correlate that grading scale with something a little bit more objective, the snakebite severity score. And so they went through the different organ systems. What are your pulmonary symptoms? What are your cardiovascular symptoms? What are your local findings, GI, hematologic, and CNS? And they gave you a certain number of points. And they actually found that this correlated very well with this grading system of minimal, moderate, or severe. OK, so I brought up this question already. Why give antivenom for minimal envenomations? The main reason is to avoid morbidity, to avoid loss of limb function, and get earlier return to work. If your arm and hand is all swollen and painful, and it's going to be like that for many weeks, but if you gave the antivenom, it might be like that for only a couple of days, and you might be back to work in less than a week, that might make a significant difference in that person's life. Now, the whole equine IgG antivenom had a relatively high incidence of allergic reactions. There was a small chance of anaphylaxis when you gave it to somebody, and almost everybody developed serum sickness, this kind of delayed rash and arthralgias that would occur several days to a couple of weeks afterwards. Almost everybody got this. And so, this Wyeth antivenom was often withheld in minimal cases because of a poor perceived benefit to risk ratio. But if you have a fab fragment antivenom, it should have less adverse effects and therefore a more favorable ratio supporting its use in minimal envenomations. Now, the copperheads, the water moccasins, generally cause less severe envenomations than from rattlesnakes. And with copperheads, historically, Wyeth antivenom was often withheld. And in case series before 2003, they would withhold it most of the time, and it would only be given up to 10% of the time. <clears throat> However, it has been found that if you do give fab fragment antivenom to copperhead bite patients, it appeared to work well. So that's kind of a, a Mikey likes it uh, kind of a study, not that great evidence. But if it has a better benefit to risk ratio, you would consider giving it for minimal envenomations. Well, what about indication for severe envenomations? Why isn't that there? The pre-marketing data submitted to the FDA, it just didn't have enough patients who met the criteria for having severe envenomations for them to be comfortable signing off and saying, yes, this was indicated for severe envenomations. But it ought to work. Not only that, there's no other specific treatment available. And there has been a recent comprehensive literature review article supporting the use of fab fragment antivenom as effective in the management of severe crotaline snake envenomation. Basically, it is used, but it had been used off-label. Now, here's where I made that apology before. On October 1st, two days after I gave this lecture, the company that re-released, it bought Crofab and then released it again to the public, changed the labeled indications. And it is now indicated for Pit North American pit vi viper envenomations of any severity because they now have enough information with severe envenomations that the FDA has changed the approval. <clears throat> Everybody was using it for severe envenomations anyway, so it's uh, mostly a moot point. What about some cautions and contraindications in using it? Per the package insert, you uh, shouldn't use it in someone with a known hypersensitivity to papaya or papain, the enzyme that cleaves the fab fragment from FC. I gotta be honest, I've never asked any patient I've given this to if they have an allergy to papaya. Uh, there's also an enzyme in pineapple, which has a lot of cross-reactivity. There's also theoretic cross-reactivity to people who are allergic to dust mites or latex. I, I guess I have to ask my patients in the future, but I, I never have before. When you're giving any kind of biologic product to a patient, you need to use caution when you're giving it to somebody who's using beta blockers, because they are more likely to have an anaphylactic reaction no matter what, but especially if you're giving them a, an animal protein product. And if they develop an anaphylactic reaction, it's harder to treat because you need to use beta agonists. The same sort of thing might apply to patients on ACE inhibitors, but this isn't a reason not to use it. It's not a contraindication. It's just a caution. 
But one benefit that CrowFab has compared to the older product, which none of you are ever going to see, is that there's no need for skin testing. It used to be in the product insert for the Wyeth whole IgG antivenom that you needed to do skin testing first, and it was complicated, and it was confusing as to how to uh, use these results, and you've just saved a lot of time by not needing any skin testing with CrowFab. All right, how do you give CrowFab? According to the package insert, it's really wishy-washy. Four to six vials, given over 60 minutes, started out slowly, and then increase the rate as long as they're tolerating it. And then you need to repeat if necessary until initial control is achieved. So this brings up the whole idea, what the heck is initial control? And then, after initial control is achieved, you give two doses at six hours after that, another two doses, uh, two vials, six hours after that, and another one, and then maybe follow-up doses. This is really all over the place. It's not very specific. So what is initial control? Initial control is defined as complete arrest of local manifestations, which essentially means local pain and swelling. Is it progressing or not? It better not be if you have initial control. And so this implies the need to document serially measurements of the limb circumference so that you can see, is it actually progressing? Don't just walk by the patient, come by 30 minutes later and say, um, I think it's worse. Actually have some objective data. But not only that, you need to have normalization of coagulation test results and systemic signs, which implies you need to get initial labs and follow-up labs, initial vital signs and follow-up vital signs. And the labs that I recommend you get are a CBC paying special attention to the platelets, PTINR, and fibrinogen. You might want to add on a CK. Okay, well that gets us up to the initial control giving four to six vial boluses. What about the scheduled doses? Two more vials at 6, 12, and 18 hours after initial control, regardless of how the patient is doing. That's kind of interesting because almost all antivenoms are titrated on a PRN basis. Does the patient need more? Yes, then give more. Does the patient not need more? Then don't give it. But this one actually has this labeled indication that you need to give more even if they're doing fine. Is this necessary or is this just a marketing ploy? It's actually related to something called recurrence phenomena. This is the return of venom-induced abnormalities after they had been arrested and corrected with initial antivenom therapy. There's a number of reasons why this might occur. There's pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic mismatch between the venom and antivenom. That's just a fancy way of saying that the antivenom levels go down before the venom levels go down. Other possibilities is that you might have binding to the venom and then unbinding from the venom and some other stuff as well. So you can get local recurrence. You had initially stopped the progression of pain and swelling and then it started progressing after that. And in clinical trials of CROFAB, this was less common when they gave scheduled dosing comparing it to PRN dosing. What did that mean? No patients got it with scheduled dosing, and half the patients got it with PRN dosing. But the numbers here were really small, They're like just dozens. And local recurrence did not occur beyond 24 hours. So they said, great, we'll just cover this time period up to like 18 hours, and that'll do it. There's also coagulopathic recurrence, and this occurred in almost 70% of patients who initially had a coagulopathy. Coagulopathy got better initially, and then it came back later on. Recurrent significant coagulopathic abnormalities generally were only seen in those patients who had early significant abnormal results, say like a platelet count less than 100,000. But these could be seen recurring anywhere from 2 to 14 days after envenomation, but generally resolved within two weeks. So here is a graph showing recurrent thrombocytopenia. So each one of these lines is a single patient, so you can see that the N, the number of patients treated, was really, really small uh, in these studies. But a lot of the patients were thrombocytopenic to begin with. They got the antivenom and their platelet counts went up. Good. All right, so it works. And then the platelet count kind of stayed up. But when they followed up several days later, a number of them had dropped. And some of them had dropped even lower than they were before. And the ones that dropped the lowest tended to have the lowest platelet count to begin with. I do not know if these patients in this study required retreatment, and I will be mentioning that within the next couple of slides as a general uh, comment. So what are the issues related to coagulopathic recurrence? It's really 
unclear if coagulopathic recurrence is affected by the scheduled dosing at 6, 12, and 18 hours. And some authors have suggested that PRN redosing, which is off-label, is acceptable. And that is actually fairly common practice. If you get coagulopathic recurrence days later, it can be treated with additional doses of fab fragment antivenom. However, it seems that the patients who have the worst recurrence are the most resistant to treatment late, but this could be several days later. Coagulopathic recurrence is actually pretty commonly seen, but it's rarely associated with any significant adverse effect. And in fact, I'm only aware of one case report when I made this lecture of significant bleeding. I, in fact, was a co-author on that uh, case report. Uh, and that one particular case is now part of a four-patient case series that just got uh, published. So now I'm aware of two reports in the literature where it actually turned into something significant. But it's the same patient in both of them. On the other hand, there's dozens or hundreds of patients where they get coagulopathic recurrence and nothing bad happens. They're not bleeding out their butt. They're not bleeding into their head. They're not hypotensive. Their platelet count is just 30. So tell them that they you know, shouldn't do motocross racing. They, and follow them up to make sure at some point their platelet count comes back up. But this has never been prospectively evaluated in any controlled way. And how long do patients need monitoring with serial labs anyway, especially if it almost never results in any morbidity? Fortunately, this is not a question we need to deal with much in the emergency department, but it's a huge question for toxicologists. One of the biggest problems is that CROFAB is insanely expensive. Now, UCI Medical Center is not typical in terms of the cost of CROFAB, but it's not too far out of the ordinary. I called the pharmacy here to get a box of two vials, costs them $3,600, and then they charge the patient $8,000. So think of what the minimum amount of CROFAB is that you need to use on a patient. If you go by the label, four vials initially to get initial control, you might have to repeat it, but let's say this patient did well. Four vials, and then six more for this repeat dosing. That's 10 vials. That's $40,000 charged to the patient. And a lot of patients who get snake bites really don't have great insurance. <clears throat> All right, my uh, final topic, and fortunately, my shortest topic. IV lipid emulsion for poisonings. This is a picture I got from a uh, website started by a doctor, an anesthesiologist, some guy called Guy. He's uh, Guy Weinberg. He's a professor of anesthesiology in Chicago. And in 1998, he discovered that lipid emulsion, which is to say like intralipid, could protect against and correct local anesthetic cardiotoxicity. And I'm talking serious cardiotoxicity. This is like taking a rat and giving it lidocaine until it is dead, until it's in asystole and then you give it intralipid and it develops a pulse and a blood pressure. Or alternately pre-treating it and then finding out that an LD100 dose of lidocaine doesn't kill the, the rat or the mouse. Now why would an anesthesiologist be thinking about this at all? Well, it turns out that there is this rare event that can occur, especially if you're a pain management specialist and you're doing nerve blocks. So you're gonna be injecting into somebody fairly high doses of a local anesthetic, like bupivacaine or lidocaine, maybe in their neck, maybe somewhere else. And every now and then, it's <coughs> rare. We don't know exactly how rare. This is a like zero to two times in your entire career kind of event. Rarely, the patient develops asystole. <clears throat> and so they, they would like a way to not kill these patients. So that's why he uh, started looking into this. And in 2006, the first case of successful human lipid rescue therapy was published by Dr. Weinberg. And that's when he began his website where I got all of these pictures. <clears throat> okay, now how does this work? This seems totally crazy. Well, there's a number of theories, but there's two main theories. One theory is that it provides fatty acid energy source for a poisoned myocardium. And then there's the one that everybody actually believes, which is that it alters the pharmacokinetics. We're talking about fat-soluble drugs. A local anesthetic has to be fat-soluble because it has to dissolve into a lipid bilayer. So now you provide all of this fat into somebody's body, and it just acts as a sink for all of this lipid-soluble drug to move into, and then it moves out of the heart. This seems kind of more likely to me. 
This picture that I have right here is a uh, picture that I got from the Lipid Rescue website. And what you're supposed to do is print this out, maybe even get it laminated, and attach it to a bag of intralipid. So in your clinic where you're doing these local anesthetic injections, when you kill somebody, you have the information available and it tells you exactly how to dose it because you're not going to be thinking straight uh, when this happens. <clears throat> Drugs where intravenous fat emulsion therapy has been used. Most of the case experiences with local anesthetics as used for nerve blocks. When I prepared this lecture just a couple months ago, there were 16 case reports published in the peer-reviewed medical literature. It's gone up since then. And there were 32, quote, unpublished cases, kind of non-peer-reviewed cases that were actually just put on Weinberg's website. But it has been used in human case reports for a number of other drugs, for various psychiatric drugs, for various cardiac medications, including calcium channel blockers and beta blockers. And also there's numerous animal studies and reports where it's been used with a whole range of medications. Most of these medications are very fat soluble. But if you add these all together, essentially we've got, it looks favorable, but the results are kind of mixed. Uh, am I done? Okay. So how do you dose this stuff if you're actually going to give it? Here's dosing protocol number one. This is the one that comes off of Dr. Weinberg's website. Yeah, I thought they did this just earlier this week. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Okay, so here's, here's how you dose it. This is based on limited clinical experience. It is not FDA approved. You take 20% intralipid, that's the standard concentration of intralipid available in North America, and you give an initial bolus of 1.5 mils per kilogram, and then you start a drip at 0.25 mils per kilo per minute. If they have persistent asystole, you can repeat the bolus, and if the blood pressure declines, you can increase the infusion rate. I found one other recommended protocol, which comes from the American College of Medical Toxicology, which is really just a minor modification of what I just previously showed you on the other slide. You start with a bolus of 1.5 mils per kilogram, and then you start a drip. <clears throat> there is even a case report of an IV fat emulsion overdose. So let's treat the overdose by giving the patient an overdose. 71-year-old woman ingested a whole bunch of amlodipine, and she was treated with kitchen sink therapy. Basically, they threw everything at her. Vasopressors, calcium, hyperinsulinemia, euglycemia therapy, which is another relatively new antidotal uh, therapy that came out within the last decade. And she was still doing poorly, and they started a lipid emulsion 12 and a half hours after her overdose. But due to poor communication at shift change, she was given two liters of 20% intralipid, which was at least a five-fold overdose. Now, hemodynamically, she was actually doing okay, but virtually every lab they wanted to order on her, they could not get any interpretable results, and they said that her blood resembled creamy tomato soup. There's, of course, a number of potential limitations to the use of intravenous fat emulsion. You know, the question was, did she survive? I actually do not recall if, uh, if she survived in that case report. Uh, but I don't think, I don't want to make it up. I don't want to lie to you and not let you know that I'm lying to you. But hemodynamically, it didn't cause any problems. Uh, so there's mixed results with intravenous fat emulsion. Multiple case reports does not equal proven efficacy. Uh, the dosing has not been standardized, but the two published dosing protocols are the same because one person copied the other. Uh, there are some potential safety issues. If you get intralipid for a long time, like for nutrition, you can develop hypersensitivity reactions, phlebitis, flat, fat emboli syndrome. We don't know if this occurs with rescue therapy. It's not been reported. But ACLS drugs, they should all be fat soluble because they need to get into the myocardium. And so intravenous fat emulsion might actually interfere with that. We don't know if it does, but it's a potential concern. And this is not common practice. I mean, it's most common practice with anesthesiologists. But working in the emergency department, we have a patient who comes in with, say, severe calcium channel blocker overdose, and you want to use this. How long is it going to take to get the intralipid? And then the pharmacist is going to say, uh, you need to fill out you know, the, the intravenous feeding protocol form. You're not going to get it in time.
It is pretty hot in this room, so I'm worried. So here is a summative comment from a recent review article. Intravenous fat emulsion has now become part of some anesthesiology practice guidelines around the world for local anesthetic toxicity, but this is really not that likely to occur in the emergency department setting. But it is reasonable to administer intravenous fat emulsion for hemodynamically significant intoxication from fat-soluble drugs after general supportive measures and recognized antidotes have been attempted unsuccessfully. Again, I just generally agree with this kind of non-committal statement. So with that, I leave you all to become super docs. And uh, here's my email if you need to email me about something. That's all. Any questions? OK, thanks.